Appreciate that, man. And uh, <clears throat> it's a more dangerous place in this church to be than the tenor position in the men's quartet. <laughs> you get replaced. So, Brother Tim, you need to be watching your six, all right? I tell you. And uh, <clears throat> growing up in a, uh, a pastor's home of a smaller uh, country Baptist church, my dad used to say on services like tonight, uh, if you don't believe in organized religion, come to our church, because we don't either. Look how disorganized we are. And uh, sometimes, in spite of our uh, best efforts, you kind of just uh, allow it to be what it is. And Sunday night, I feel like, is one of those services that's intended to be uh, what tonight was, even though we did it unintentionally. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the Bible says, laughter doeth good like a medicine, and sometimes... Uh, it's fun to watch the new as assistant pastor struggle up here by his own making and do something that I've done multiple times where you forget to make it where you can see on the back what everyone's seeing behind you. And so he's seeing basically a blank screen and everyone just gets to have a good laugh at his expense. And so I'm so thankful for that. And uh, thank you, brother. We're very, very grateful for it. Yeah, amen. And uh, then who could ever... Um, you never know what Gary's going to say when he gets behind the pulpit. And, and I'm sitting back there going, just sing the song, just sing the song, just sing the song. And uh, I know all of you are like, just keep going. This is great, brother. This is great. <clears throat> and then, of course, it's eternally preserved because we live stream services now and we can look back on this and just laugh over and over and over and over again. And so, amen. That's a blessing. So, <clears throat> tonight... Um, we're continuing on with our series. Go forth, boys. Y'all should have already been going. Uh, if, you, uh, if you don't have a handout, I think very few probably got them. I think the boys gobbled them up rather quickly because uh, they wanted to pass them out. But if you'd like a handout, uh, the boys will get those to you. And um, <clears throat> we, uh, we've been going through why I'm a Baptist and just trying to look at biblical principles, uh, just more of a topical, uh, which is kind of different. Normally we're going verse by verse, line by line through a book. And uh, here on Sunday nights, try to take a little bit more of a practical approach. And so we're addressing and dealing with the idea of, uh, you know, why, why we're not interested as Bible Baptist Church of removing Baptists from the label of what is our church. And that we are not ashamed of our Baptist heritage and we're very thankful. Uh, we're not angry about it. Right? We're not walking around and just blasting people. We're just mad about being Baptist. But I'm also thankful for the heritage that we have that's been passed to us. Amen. And the church here with the rich history of almost 80 years right at that, uh, that we're not willing to set that aside because of the cultural trends and whatever degree or movement that they are. Because 20, 30 years from now, who knows where they're going to be. Right. Uh, and so we're just kind of interested, not kind of, very interested in just being true to the book, yeah. preaching the word, and believing that a church doesn't necessarily have to have all the bells and whistles. What we need to be is be true to preaching the word of God and letting God's word influence and change our lives. And I'm thankful for what God's doing uh, right here in our church. This is a proof of the reality that uh, what a church really needs is a heart for people a desire to glorify the Lord and a willingness to stay true to the book. And so uh, very, very grateful for that. So we, we are coming up on the, the Lord's Supper and um, as is the case uh, every year, uh, as we observe the Lord's table, always like to prepare the church. Uh, I believe it's an important time uh, of um, reflection. You know, the Bible says we ought to examine ourselves. Uh, but it's also an important time of remembering 
Jesus said, this do in remembrance of me. Uh, too many people have lost that that was the main intention behind why the Lord gave us uh, the, uh, the Last Supper, the, the ordinance of following the Lord's Supper. And so uh, we're going to deal with that, but because of my desire to, to deal with that a little bit more time, tonight's lesson is lengthy. And so we are not going to deal with both baptism and Lord's Supper tonight. And everyone said... Yeah, amen, right, uh, because we would be here a little bit longer than I would want to be or you would want to be, and so the desire here tonight is just to take a look at baptism, okay? Next week, we will take a look at the Lord's Supper. I also plan on preaching a few additional sermons leading up to the Lord's Supper uh, as we can uh, not only know what the elements are for, the unleavened bread and the cup, as the Bible calls it, uh, to be able to know what those elements are for, to remember broken body and shed blood, uh, but also what the Bible means about examining ourselves and being prepared and ready, mind and heart, and kind of, we say it this way, coaching the church, because it is a different service. The whole service is the Lord's Supper, and uh, we come in, there's not fellowship like there normally is. It's like a funeral service, because that's what Christ intended it to be. Remember the death, broken body and shed blood. And so I'm thankful, though, that we do that on Wednesday because what follows up right after that is Sunday, which is the resurrection, which is this. He didn't stay dead. And, uh, boy, we're sure thankful for that, aren't we, church? That's a tremendous blessing. Well, so with that in mind, I've just laid the groundwork for a bunch of stuff about the, the Lord's Supper, and we're not even going to talk about it tonight. We're going to talk about baptism. So I kind of wanted to give you that, though, uh, so that you would know uh, we're not going to be covering all the notes tonight and uh, try to be a little bit more uh, diligent and punctual uh, with dealing with even baptism here tonight. Okay, uh, We're going to be in Matthew chapter number 28 this evening. If you want to find your place there in the scriptures in Matthew chapter 28. And if you're able to, let's stand together as we honor the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter number 28. These would be familiar verses for many. Many people might even have them memorized and committed to heart. Matthew chapter number 28, and uh, we're just going to read those last three verses of the book. And so verses 18 down through verse number 20. Matthew chapter number 28, and we'll start reading there in verse number 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power. I wish you could just preach a whole message just on that, because he just resurrected and now he's saying, you know what power I have because you've just seen it demonstrated. And I'm telling you, I'm going to tell you to do something and you can do it not in your own energy or strength, but because I have all power. And, mm, so good. Okay, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, here it is, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, the Holy Ghost teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So again, we're going to talk about two ordinances, kind of a part one here tonight. We're going to talk about that of baptism. So may God bless reading this word. You can be seated. And thank you for standing in honor of the scriptures uh, here uh, tonight. <clears throat> One thing I wasn't quite prepared for when I became a pastor, uh, they did not teach this in Bible college, at least what to expect uh, in this area of the ordinances. Um, and then I went on staff for four years as a youth pastor at a church, and 
never personally, as a youth pastor, you don't handle these things, so I didn't really deal with it there. And then I became a pastor at the ripe old age of 26, and as I started uh, experiencing what pastors experience, um, I started to realize in our society today, in our world today, there were no greater issues that had a person that would come to church and then would just leave and not come back other than the ordinances. Dealing with people on the area of baptism and then scripturally looking at the Lord's Supper, that when you present the Bible and the biblical mandates of what's given there, it's amazing to me how many people say, well, we don't want to submit to the biblical view of that, and so we don't agree, so we're going somewhere else. You say, well, that doesn't happen. That is, in my estimation, the number one reason why, since I've been pastoring for 10 years, the number one reason why people come and they love the church, they love the preaching, they love the singing, they love everything about it, and then decide to leave because of a disagreement about one of these issues. So say this, is this a relevant sermon? Absolutely. A absolutely, because it is important for us to land not where our emotions take us and not where we hope to fall. But again, we want to be true to the Bible. And, and we want to be sure that where we're thinking and, and where we are as a church positionally lines up with God's Word. And, and regardless of what the social trends are, again, or where things are moving or what other churches are doing, uh, let's be true to the Bible. Uh, so much so that I know there are churches that just you know, advertise and just blast out there. Hey, come just enjoy the Lord's Supper with us. The whole community, just come on out. We're having a big smorgasbord of the Lord's Supper. And for me, I look at that and I go, man, that just doesn't line up with the scriptures and, and the idea of open communion and, and that of baptism that someone says, well, I got sprinkled as a baby. That should be good enough, right? And you say, well, you know, that just doesn't line up with the Bible. And so we're going to do this here tonight. Take a look at what the Bible has to say about baptism. And we'll do this. If in your heart and in your testimony as we go through this, you start to come to this conclusion, I don't think I'm scripturally baptized, then I would love to visit with you about that so that we could get you scripturally baptized to submit to scriptural authority and biblical authority so that you can get baptized the right way that God instructed you to be. And there's no shame in that. Man, there's so many weird thoughts out there about what baptism is to be able to see it in the scripture and then say, you know what, that's what I need. What, there's no greater thing you could do than to submit to what you know God wants you to do in your life. Now, so by way of introduction here, just kind of jump into the notes and start working on this. We believe in two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we could actually say it this way, in that order. You can't take the Lord's Supper unless you're scripturally baptized. Okay, and we'll, we'll get to some of that when we get to the Lord's Supper. Now, when you are baptized, you are identifying yourself with Christ, declaring your intention to walk with Christ, and are uniting with a New Testament church. So, uh, you've probably heard, and we'll, we'll talk about this as we read some of these scriptures, that when somebody's buried, the Bible actually says that we are buried in the likeness of His death and raised in the likeness of His resurrection, to walk in newness of life. Uh, baptism is just that, a picture, an identification. 
Somebody saying, I belong to Jesus and I'm not ashamed. I have accepted him as my Savior. So look at a few of these verses here. Acts 2, 41 would say it this way. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Now, I've often wondered when we think about baptism, we think about how we're viewing baptism, right? You got one, two, three, four people getting baptized. Can you imagine a 3,000 person baptism service? I don't know how they did it. Maybe all 12 disciples are out there actually. I don't know. Maybe they got them out there. Everyone down. Everyone up. I don't know. But they were all baptized that day. And I'm trying to make light of it. Just in my mind, I imagine, how do you baptize 3,000 people? But they were added to the church that day. It's incredible. I'd love to be there for that service. Awesome. Hey, Acts 8.12 says it this way. But when they believed, Philip preaching uh, the things concerning the kingdom of God... And the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Okay. Acts 8.36 says it this way, And as they went on their way, they came into a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Acts 9.18, And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith, and arose, and was baptized. Acts 10.48 says, And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord, then prayed they him to tarry certain days. Acts 16, 15, And when she was baptized and her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. Acts 16, 33, And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his, straightway. When a person got saved in the Bible, they were baptized. I mean, you just replete in the scriptures, they go hand in hand. In each case, the person baptized was baptized almost immediately after salvation. And that baptism was always by the mode of immersion. The longest period was Paul, which was only three days. That's scripturally recorded. You say, well, does that mean if somebody's been saved for a long length of time and they get baptized that wrong? Maybe not ideal. I don't know if we say it's wrong. But scripturally, just point out what the Bible shows is typically you have somebody getting saved and then as soon as possible getting baptized. And that is really the scriptural mode that we have. So the Lord's Supper, of course, is never represented in the Bible as being taken by anyone except those who are saved and baptized and that in their own church. So uh, just kind of an overview of, of both of these. Um, let me kind of lay to rest some false thoughts about some of this. Now both of these are what we would call ordinances and not what is oftentimes used in the Catholic Church and others as sacraments. You say, well, what's the difference between the two of these? Well, just in basic terms, I'll give you the technical way here in just a moment. An ordinance is something that you do to obey. A sacrament is something you do in order to be saved. There's a big difference between those two. Uh, I don't take the Lord's Supper and we don't get baptized in order to be saved. That's only because of what Jesus did on the cross. And if you put your faith and trust in Him. Yeah, we don't, we don't believe you've got to take the Lord's Supper and actually eat Jesus in order to be saved. No cannibalism around here, amen? amen. Well, I'll tell you this, uh, there's a lot of groups that are out there that teach false doctrines on this, that there are things called sacraments that you must follow. So the word sacrament in official terms literally means this. Efficacious signs of grace instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church by which divine life is dispensed to us. 
Catechism of the Catholic Church says that. Now that just blessed your heart, I know. So it's not just a picture or sign. They actually give grace. The only way to receive God's grace is by partaking in sacraments. Now that's a false view, but that's what they would believe. A sacrament is something that you must have in order to receive grace. I am so thankful we don't believe in any type of a work-based salvation. Now, again, let me say that a little bit more clear. It's not that we believe it. I'm so thankful the Bible teaches grace by faith salvation that there are no works that are required in order to be saved. So Catholics, who are usually the most uh, number one guilt of this, believe in seven different sacraments. So these are things that are done uh, in order to be saved, if you want to oversimplify it. Of course, number one would be this, baptism. This is why they are um, baptizing infants, is they believe that they need to have their sins washed away, and that can only happen as they pour a cup of water on their head. And the priest does that. Okay, Obviously a false view there. The Eucharist, what we call communion or the Lord's Supper, that they would take this almost every service, that they would kneel and the priest would come by and give them the wafer and drink the cup. And they would do that in order, as they believe, to literally eat and drink Christ, uh, His actual body and blood, so that they have Him in them, that they must do that in order to be saved. Confirmation, they believe this is the giving of the Holy Spirit, not like a Pentecostal way. Uh, Pentecostals believe in a double blessing, you know, get the Holy Spirit and weird things happen. And uh, again, there's no scriptural evidence for that. Uh, actually, the Bible teaches when you get saved, you get the Holy Spirit. Instantaneously, you receive Him. Okay? Uh, letter D there, <clears throat> reconciliation or confession. This would be going into a, a booth there and uh, letting the priest know all the dirty, rotten things you did because you don't have the priesthood of the believer according to the Catholic. You can't go to Jesus on your own. You need someone to go to Him for you. Uh, we've already talked about that, that we have the priesthood of the believer. We can go directly to Christ and ask for forgiveness of sins and be reconciled to Him directly that way. Okay? Anointing of the sick. The physically sick being anointed with oil. And again, I know people have different views on this, even Baptists. Personally, I believe when it talks about there in the book of James in chapter 5, being anointed with oil, it's talking about medicinal purposes. Hey, do what's able to be done physically with medicine, but healing is of the Lord. And so the prayer of faith is what saves them, not the medicine, but that doesn't mean you leave off the medicine. But they would believe that you actually need to put oil on them and anoint them for sick, and that is actually a sacrament. Letter F there, marriage. They consider marriage an actual sacrament or something that has in it efficacious grace to save. Okay? Holy orders, and this would be the ordination of priest and certain rites and rituals and connections within the priesthood. Okay? So those are the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church. Now, to, to lay this to rest, we'll just kind of say this clearly. They have no redeeming value whatsoever. <clears throat> Sorry, when you got married, that isn't what saved you. Okay? Uh, they are outward expressions of the inward heart. Now, when we talk about the ordinances, specifically of the Lord's table or the Lord's supper and of baptism, they are outward expressions of obedience, outward signs and actions that we do, not in order to be saved, but to express or say something in obedience to what God has told us to do. That, that, that's what they are. That's what the ordinances are. So baptism is a New Testament ordinance given to the church <clears throat> as a part of the Great Commission. It is not a matter of location when dealing with baptism. It's a matter of authority. And we'll definitely talk about that a little bit later. 
you say, does it matter if you get baptized in a, a baptistry or in a river or in a lake? It really doesn't matter. Actually, when the Ethiopian eunuch said to Philip, uh, what doth hinder me to be baptized? And he goes, see, there's much water here. Well, we got enough water. That's all we need for you to be baptized, right? It's got to be the right authority and under the right circumstances of a person who's been saved. And, of course, we'll go over all that here in just a moment. It has very little to do with the place of baptism. It has so much more to do with the right candidate and under the right authority. So, uh, number two there, you may enjoy crackers and grape juice at your house, but that's not the Lord's Supper because it is a church ordinance. Uh, again, uh, just as with baptism, the location doesn't matter. As with the Lord's table or the Lord's Supper, uh, if you want to call it the Lord's Supper at home and eat unleavened bread and grape juice, that's great. You can eat it all you want, but it's not the Lord's Supper because it's a church ordinance that must reside under the authority where God rested the authority in His New Testament church. So, uh, again, that's why we call them church ordinances. Okay? So, why are there only two? It's a good question to ask. So, uh, we'll look at three logical reasons why there are only two ordinances that are given to us. Uh, there is one group of Baptists that believe there's a third one. Anybody know what that third one might be? Foot washing. Uh, I'm thankful that we don't hold to that Amen. being an ordinance. Um, I guess it would be too terrible of a thing with that. It's just, I love Kyle Hastings, but I ain't washing your feet, brother. That's rough, isn't it? Okay, 1 Corinthians 11, 2 says this. Uh, it says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three would go on to say this, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And we know this is Paul instructing the Corinth church, who is taking the Lord's Supper wrong. He was saying, what I'm giving to you is what I receive from the Lord. This is directly from him. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4 would say it this way, For I delivered unto you first of all that which also I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day, uh, rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So let me give you three things here, again, three logical reasons why there's only these two ordinances. The first one is this. It must be instituted in the Gospels. Uh, it had to be uh, prepared, brought forth, initiated by Jesus Christ Himself. And, and again, um, <clears throat> we have some Scripture here. We're not going to turn to those and look at them. But Matthew 3, John 4 talk about baptism. Matthew 26, 26 through 30, the Lord's Supper. Uh, we believe, and the, I believe the Bible teaches rather clearly at least, that the church began with Jesus Christ in His earthly ministry. It did not start on the day of Pentecost. Start on the day of Pentecost, and all the things that were given to the disciples as instructive died with the disciples. But if they were given to the church, they live in perpetuity with the church, which will exist until Christ comes again. And so we say this, it's important that they were instituted or given with the Gospels and given from Jesus to that first church so that they live in perpetuity to this day. Second thing is, it must be practiced in Acts. Uh, Acts is a very transitional book. Uh, it'd be a dangerous thing for you to try to develop doctrinal stances on Acts alone because you have in Acts the gospel being only to the Jews and then being to the Samaritans and the Jews and then eventually going to the Gentiles. That was interesting with Peter, right? The sheet coming down, kill, eat, and Peter goes, not so, Lord. 
Uh, I haven't eaten that stuff ever, and it didn't happen. And Jesus, God's telling him there, I said, kill and eat, kill and eat. And he goes to Cornelius there, and he gives them the gospel, and they receive the Holy Spirit in a very powerful way as a sign that salvation had come to the Gentiles. And Peter said, there's evidence. How can we hinder these people to be baptized? It's clearly that the gospel has come to them. But in the book of Acts, obviously it being practiced is showing this, a continuation from it being administered and given in the gospels and now being practiced in the early church in the book of Acts as a pattern of, hey, this is something that the early church was doing. Third thing is this, it must be instructed upon in the epistles. The epistles, of course, being those letters that are written uh, during the time of the Acts and all of the time after that, uh, of course, you have the book of Romans and First and Second Corinthians, and most of the New Testament there are the epistles. Now, again, we have those scriptures that are given for us there in which we see both baptism and the Lord's Supper being further instructed on and given in those epistles. There are only two that follow all of these things, being given by the Lord Jesus Christ, practiced in the book of Acts, and then further explained in the epistles. So, of course, there are some deviations from the ordinance of baptism, some things that are not what they should be, and they're not lining up with Scripture. So I'm just going to mention these. We won't dig into them real deep here. One is baptismal regeneration. That is the belief that the water washes your sins away. That is not scripturally accurate. There's only one thing that can cause our heart to be cleansed of sin and for us to be made right with the Heavenly Father, and that is the shed blood of Jesus Christ alone. Person who wouldn't believe and trust in Him. Uh, as much as I know you all love the Bridgeport water, it does not have uh, grace in it that can... <laughs> that was a joke because it's Bridgeport water. But anyways, uh, there, and there's nothing special about the water here at the church. Um, you know, some churches would, would teach me, well, we got holy water, you know. I'm telling you, we got the same water you got at home, okay? There's nothing magical or spiritual about us filling up this baptistry up here that makes the water somehow better or holy or more righteous to be able to do something special in your life, okay? It just doesn't work that way. Second thing is infant baptism. Obviously, this is born out of baptismal regeneration. If the water washes your sins away, I don't want my baby to die and go to hell. So I need to wash their sins away as soon as they're born. So then they have these big christenings where they baptize the babies. And of course, that doesn't line up with Scripture at all uh, because baptism, as you see it in every instance in the Bible, there are no instances where baptism is mentioned in which it is not preceded by salvation. There's always a person who puts their trust in Christ and then is baptized. Well, an infant is not at the age of understanding where they can put their faith in Christ, so they need not be baptized. And then number three, sprinkling or pouring rather than immersion. And of course, we understand, uh, and we'll talk about this here in just a little bit also, the Bible way is always by immersion. Again, there is no scripture that is ever given in the Bible where baptism is disconnected by somebody being immersed. What I mean by immersed is head to toe all the way under the water. Not pouring water on them, not sprinkling water on them, but completely being immersed. Now, scriptural baptism. You say, well, you keep talking about scriptural baptism. Does somebody have a scriptural baptism? Does it line up with the Bible? Well, there are four requirements for something to be what's considered a scriptural baptism. All right? Again, for sake of time, I'm going to run through these quickly, but these, we could spend a lot of time on each one of these. Okay? So the first one is this, candidate. It has to be a born-again believer. Um, if somebody gets baptized... Before they're saved, that baptism is not good. So 
uh, just kind of run this down, conversations I've even had uh, with folks that come in and they have been truly saved, but they got baptized maybe as an infant or baptized by something way before that moment of conversion. And talking to you, be like, you know, I'm glad, I guess, that happened beforehand, that you had some exposure to some truth of the gospel or some religion beforehand. But, you know, the Bible teaches that now you have been scripturally saved and you put your faith in the Lord. Now is the time to be baptized. And to be able to have that conversation with somebody, that a proper candidate is somebody who has been saved. Number two, mode. The mode is always by immersion. And we'll talk more about that here in just a moment. Number three, motivation. Um, I've known people who want to be baptized. Motivation there was number three. Um, I've known people who want to be baptized because they want to feel better about something or they want to turn over a new leaf or it's because their buddy's doing or I want to get baptized because I don't want my spouse to be scared to be baptized, so I want to do it with them. Those are wrong motivations behind why somebody wants to get baptized. Well, why does somebody need to be baptized? Well, one, I got saved and I want to follow the Lord in obedience because He told me to do that. And also, I want to identify with Him. Death, burial, resurrection, I want to say I'm saved and I'm testifying that I have put my faith and trust in Christ. Number four, this is the one by and large that we've always had hang-ups with, which is this, authority. And we'll talk more about it, but the authority rests within the New Testament church and what we would believe a doctrinally sound church, which would be a Baptist church. Okay, So again, there are those who would maybe cross hairs with that. But we believe we have scriptural grounds for that. If any of these are missing, then you do not have a scriptural baptism. Okay? You've got to follow these, the right candidate, right mode, right motivation, right authority. Otherwise, we do not have something that lines up with the Bible. So let me go through a few of these here real quickly. Mode, let's revisit that a little bit here. Mode is by immersion. So there's three ways that it can be done, or baptism has been talked about. You can sprinkle, you can pour, or you can immerse somebody. And obviously only one of those three is right. Now we have some scriptural examples here. Matthew 3, 6 says it this way, And were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. Why in the world do you have to be in Jordan unless you're getting dunked? You could be standing on the banks and be getting sprinkled a lot easier. You ever see these pictures of Jesus' baptism and they're like this deep in the water and John the Baptist is like dumping water on his head? And I'm like, what is going on here? Right? The, the, the scriptural evidence is that they were by immersion and that's what John was doing there in the Jordan River. Okay? Uh, Matthew 3.16 would say it this way, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. The scripture says there that he came up out of the water, which implies he was in the water. Sometimes grammar is hard. John 3.23. Sorry, sarcasm. Die. Okay. John 3.23. And John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. You don't need much water to sprinkle or to pour, but you do need a lot of water to immerse somebody. Yeah, it takes a lot of water to fill up that baptistry, right? Because you need a lot of water to get somebody fully immersed under the water, okay? Acts chapter 8, verse 36 to 39 would say it this way, And as they went on their way, they came into a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, 
and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Again, into the water, out of the water, went in. Immersion is the implication that is there. So we have scriptural uh, evidence that immersion is the way. We also have the word baptize itself. If you go to any um, and every existence of a Greek lexicon, uh, this would be a, a, like a dictionary for Greek words. Okay, So you could take Greek words and figure out their root meaning in English and what all they mean. Every single one of them have as the primary use for the word immersion this. Uh, by the way, the primary word is immersion. I mean, the actual use of the word in every Greek lexicon is this, immersion. There's nowhere that it means pour. There's nowhere that it means sprinkle. There's nowhere that it even alludes to that. Actually, the, uh, the Greek word that's used there, baptizo, which is used some 80 times in the New Testament, literally means this, to plunge, dip, immerse, submerge. The etymology of the very word itself literally means immersion. Go all the way under. Grammatically, it only makes sense if it's by immersion. Matthew 3, 6, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. Grammatically, it doesn't make sense unless they are actually being immersed. What baptism pictures requires immersion. We've already mentioned Romans 6, 4, and 5, Colossians 2, 12, buried with him, baptized, when he risen again, him through faith, the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. Listen, when somebody dies, I have never, I've done, I've, I've performed many a funeral. I've been, as a grown-up at a pastor's home, I've been to more funerals than I can count. I have never, ever, ever gone to a graveside and seeing the, the people that are burying the person go, he is now buried. <laughs> Ever. I've never seen someone take a cup of dirt, dump it on somebody and go, we're done. Literally, when people are buried, they go in the ground. I mean, even with tombs, the descriptive language that's used in the Bible is that they went in the ground, into the tomb. Right? And so even the picture that's being presented of baptism, dying, buried, rose again, requires that they go by immersion or else it loses the picture of what it's all even about. Church history also shows immersion. All the way up to the 1700s, Catholics were accepting sprinkling or immersion. They don't do immersion anymore, but up to the 1700s they were. Martin Luther said it this way, I would have those to be baptized to be all together dipped. Amen. All the way in the water there. John Calvin said it this way, the word baptized means immersion. And it is certain that this was the original mode. John Wesley said it this way, Romans 6.4 confirms the ancient mode was immersion. Sprinkling didn't even begin to be accepted or popular until infant baptism came along hundreds of years after Christ. And so here we have very clearly the mode is by immersion. All right, let's do this quick because this is a big one. Authority. Who has the authority to baptize? Who has the ability to take somebody and actually baptize them? Now, the, probably the most popular answer that I get to this is the preacher, to which is an incorrect answer. Now, I know why people say that, because typically that's what you see in a church service. You see the pastor or the assistant pastor, whoever it is, is doing the baptizing. But scripturally, that's not the correct answer. So we need to kind of dig into this a little bit here. 
So the Great Commission, as we read at the beginning of the service here, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, we have to ask this question, to whom was the Great Commission given in Matthew 28, 18 through 20? When Jesus said, all power is given to me in heaven and earth, go ye therefore. He's given the instruction. This is the mission statement of the church. Anybody ever ask, what's Bible Baptist Church's mission statement? I go, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Okay, that, that is our mission statement. So we say this, well, what are we supposed to do as a church? What, what, what's been the commission that's been given by God? Who is the go ye when he says, get people saved, teach them all things, baptize them, and then teach them, right? Disciple them, bring them up in the word. Well, who is that instruction given to? Well, you got one of three options here. Number one, the apostles. If it was given to those 12 men, or at this point, 11 men, if it was given to them, when they died, it died with them. That's the end of it. Second thing, this is maybe a little bit more popular of a view, individuals. Was it given just to individuals? And we say the Great Commission is given. A Great Commission is for you, and it's for you, and it's for you, and it's for you, and it's for you. The Great Commission was just given to all individuals. This is a very popular view today because the universal church has kind of become a popular view. That there is no local church. It's all just a big universal invisible church that's out there. Now, the individual leads to Christ, baptizes, and teaches. Is that what he had in mind there, that it's up to you as an individual to see somebody saved, then you go baptize them, then you teach them all things. If you follow it out to a logical conclusion, that's not what Christ intended as you read the New Testament, is it's not your responsibility as an individual by yourself, apart from any entity, to be the sole begin and end of somebody's growth in Christ. So what was he given to well, there's one final answer you're left with, which was this, the institution of the New Testament church. The church is the proper answer there. We would say an emphatic yes, this is who it was given to. Jesus gave this commission to the only organization and organism he founded, which is the church. So we say it this way, who has the authority to baptize? The church does. So we say it this way, uh, say um, Brother Kyle Hastings here, uh, some teenager gets saved, he's working with the youth, and they say, you know, Brother Kyle's been really influential in my life, and he's really invested in me, and he led me to the Lord. Could Brother Kyle Hastings baptize me? Well, we'd bring it for the church. Church, do you all mind if Kyle Hastings does the baptizing here? And the church says yes, because the authority vested is within the church. Then Brother Kyle Hastings, get up there and, and baptize him. Why? Because it's not about who's doing it. It's where the authority lies, which is with the church. Now, uh, we oftentimes have the pastor that's doing this, somebody that's on staff at the church, because there's an inherent investing of authority from the church into that individual to do those ordinances, to administer the Lord's Supper and to give the baptizing there. Okay? So, authority is important. So, Jesus walked 60 miles to be baptized by John the Baptist and not the apostles. There were many places he could have gotten baptized in Galilee, but he had to go where the authority was at. It's interesting to me that Jesus went 60 miles, which might not seem like a big deal today. It's a big deal then. It's a big, long trip. Uh, to go all the way down to Jordan from Galilee so that he might be baptized in the place that God instructed that he was to be baptized under the right authority. We also know this. It is a church ordinance. 1 Corinthians 11.2 says it this way. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. Who's he talking to? The church at Corinth. Hey, follow the ordinances which were given to the New Testament church. Baptism is the door for church membership. We read of that in Acts chapter 2 and verse number 41. We talked about the 3,000 souls that were added. 
It talks about when they were baptized, they were added to the church. B baptism is the door by which church membership uh, then is given. The Lord works through His church. There, there's one thing. Jesus died for the church. Jesus loved the church and gave Himself for it. This is the institution, the organization that Christ Himself developed and established. It has nothing to do with somebody coming up with it. God established it. And so the Lord works through His church, not just in uh, baptism, but in many other ways. There are consequences and dangers of open baptism. We say, well, what would the dangers be? Well, if we just kind of open the floodgates and say, if you've been sprinkled, dipped, poured by this group, that group, or any other group, and just come on in, we welcome everyone. Now, again, understand we're talking about church membership. Somebody being actually a part of the body and being involved in the ministry and the inner workings of what happens in the church. Listen, we want everybody to come and be a part of our services. Amen. Absolutely. So he says, what would you do if somebody walked in from this lifestyle or this background or they looked like this or they had that? And we'd say this, we'd shake their hand, give them a welcome packet like we would anybody else and say, thanks for being here. We're glad you're here. Amen. We want them to hear the gospel and be saved. We want them to know the truth of the Bible. But understand what we're talking about here is not talking about entrance into the church to be a part of a service. We're talking about entrance into the membership of the church to be an effective part of the body of Christ, this local New Testament church. So what happens, the danger of just opening yourself up to everyone join, it doesn't matter any of your baptism background. Well, baptism not only aligns you with Jesus Christ, it also aligns you with the set of doctrine. Thus, accepting non-Baptist baptism accepts non-Baptist doctrine. When you get baptized, you're not only identifying with Christ, you're also saying, I believe that the way that this church taught salvation was given, I believe that. I, I believe salvation is by grace, through faith. If you get baptized in a church of Christ, you know what they believe when you get baptized there? That that water is actually washing your sins away. There's a huge difference there. And being baptized, you're aligning with that belief system, that doctrine that says, Jesus' blood wasn't enough. I also need this water to wash it away. There's a huge difference between those two. There's a lot of groups that would align in that same way. Open baptism also leads to interdenominationalism. Which we talked about this. Why not remove all the labels? Who cares if they're Baptist or Methodist or this? Well, sure, go to your pantry and remove all the labels. But next time you go to get carrots, don't be mad at me if you get potatoes. Because doctrine matters. I mean, churches believe different things. And, and the, the putting Baptist up there is basically identifying we believe the book is the sole authority. And it's an identifier that identifies us with that. Open baptism follows ecumenical lines, which is basically saying this. Uh, everyone's the same and we're all just going to hold hands and we're all going to get together. Okay? Open baptism destroys the unity of the Spirit. I'm telling you, if you open up baptism with all that, you're going to have some confrontation and conflict within the church. If you have one group of people that believe salvation is by works and another group that believes it's by faith alone. Yep. You want to invite contention within a church, just open up the floodgates, right? That's exactly what would happen there. And again, we have some scripture uh, there in Ephesians chapter 4 where it talks about one faith, one Lord, one baptism. We kind of give some definition on that this way. you got these blanks there, which is this. One Lord... Agreement on authority. Who's our authority? Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ and His Word that He has given to us. One faith. Agreement on doctrine. What does the Bible teach? 
Let's agree on that. There's one. And then one baptism, which is this. It ties it all together, ties us all together. One baptism that we've all fallen under. Now, again, I know this probably doesn't answer all questions about baptism that you might have. And everyone right now is saying, I'm so glad we're not continuing on with the Lord's Supper. But I'll tell you this, if, if maybe through this you have some questions that have been stirred about baptism, maybe from your personal life or just because you have some questions, I'll tell you right now, don't just pocket those things away and be like, okay, well, I disagree, so I'm just never coming back. Or uh, don't, don't put those back and say, well, I'm just going to be confused and not bring it up. No, no, I would love to visit with you about those. And, and again, there's a lot of scripture that we just kind of read through or maybe just touched and then went. To be able to take the time and actually sit down and visit with you about that and further explain, maybe a misunderstanding, but further explain what does the Bible say about each of these points of baptism. Maybe it is through the sermon tonight you got convicted and said, you know what, I, I got baptized, but it's not scriptural and I need to be scripturally baptized. Well, here's the great news. We as a church, the church ordinance, would love to see you scripturally baptized. No greater thing. There's not going to be anybody sitting back there going, oh man, that's just terrible that they didn't actually get that done the first time. No, everybody's going to be excited and elated that you're willing to submit to the scriptures in realizing, hey, I'm not where I need to be with baptism. And then saying, now that I realize that, I'm willing to submit to the proper authority and be scripturally baptized the way Christ intended. Let's all stand together as we have a time of invitation.